0: Uh, Last week, we considered the very beginning of the doctrinal section uh, found in uh, the fifth doctrinal section the book of Hebrews. This doctrinal section uh, has two parts. Uh, Chapter 11 is about faith. Chapter 12 is about endurance. And uh, so in our preliminary sermon, we looked at the very beginning of chapter 11 and we noticed how the author defined or described faith. Faith uh, is... Taking future unseen things and bringing them, their existence, into your present. At the end of the sermon, we asked God to do a greater work in our heart, to produce great, greater or deeper faith so that we might trust Him. This evening, we're going to start looking at the example list. Remember, I said in the heart of the book of uh, Hebrews or Hebrews 11 is this great list of examples of people who had faith. The list contains 18 named individuals and many unnamed individuals, and I think the author is using these individuals to inspire his readers to, to press on in their own commitment to Jesus Christ. The list of examples, if you remember from last week, it follows Scripture from Genesis to Malachi. Malachi. That is, it's a biblical theological reflection on the nature of faith. Uh, He helps us see us by going through the Old Testament scriptures and some examples of faith. So in our sermon today, we're we're going to consider more about the nature of faith by looking at the first of these examples. Before we do that, however, let me just take a moment and talk to you uh, pastorally about some of the things we're facing in our culture. We are living in a very difficult time. Uh, Perhaps there have been more difficult times. We could get uh, some of our church history professors to speak into that. Maybe we're just wimps, but it certainly seems as if we're going through some challenging times in our culture. Not only are we facing a silent killer, a virus, that has changed the lives of every person in this country and beyond, uh, but now we also are watching injustice and violence all around our country. This violence started recently with the apparent brutality and physical abuse of a man that prematurely ended his life as a human being made in the image of God. And it continues now with further destruction, anarchy, and death. Such difficult times like this, Christians might wonder, how should we respond? How should we respond to the fear of injustice, the fear of suffering, the fear of death, the fear of violence? What should we do? While God might lead us to respond in many different ways and encourage others uh, and promote virtues outlined in the scriptures, today we're going to consider a virtue that has to be at the top of the list. A virtue that will set you apart or above others during this time. A virtue that will strike others with its firm resolve and confidence. A virtue that is built on something sturdy and steadfast. A virtue built on bold faith in Jesus Christ. That is what I want to suggest to you tonight with what God has planned for us in this expositional series is for us to see that bold confidence or trust in Jesus is what, not only what we need at this time, but it's what the world needs to see during this time from us. Imagine with me the power and the strength of a word to your neighbor Or a word to your fellow worker that declares an unflinching faith that Jesus is king and that he will soon return to reign and rule in this world to judge sinfulness and those reject him and to establish peace and joy that is unthinkable. What the world really needs to know is the end of the story of Scripture. I was struck with the very last two verses in Revelation this week. Very last two words in the way God tells the story in Revelation. It starts out this way Jesus saying, Surely I come quickly. That's what our world needs to know. That's belief that the future is just about ready to squash the present. That's what people need to hear, Jesus, his love, his sacrifice for them, and his soon return to judge sinners and deliver believers. That's what the Bible says. So I want to look more at the nature of this bold faith, and I think some of these examples will be Uh, Again, very relevant for us today. Look at the first of the four outstanding examples in verse three. So look there in your Bible. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's interesting that the very first example that the author gives in this list of examples is him and his readers. Or him and us. You can see this in the subjects. Look in verse three. By faith, then what's the subject? We. Okay? Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel, verse 5, by faith Enoch, verse 7, by faith Noah. Okay. So the very first way, the way he starts is by declaring to him and his readers that they accept by faith what is found in Genesis 1 and 2 about the creation of this universe out of nothing. By the words of God. Took some time to read through the creation account again this, this week, and I noticed that seven times in Genesis 1 alone, the Bible says it this way, and he spoke, or and he said, okay, and you know some of these, yeah. and he said, let there be light, and there was light, okay? But seven times, God speaks, he says something, and something comes out of nothing, Okay, so that's what the scriptures declare. Some people proudly proclaim today, uh, I cannot accept anything by faith. Um, Have you ever heard someone say that before? I can't accept anything by faith. I I need to see it for myself if I'm going to accept it or I need to have some evidence to prove it. I'm not just gonna take it by faith. Uh, That profession, however, if you think about it, is completely naive. Every person has to take things on the basis of faith in one way or another. I was reading in Al Mohler's Commentary on Hebrews, and he gives the example of your great-great-grandparents. He said, many of us probably have never met our great-great-grandparents. Perhaps we've never even seen pictures of them before, but we accept on the basis of faith that they existed. Right? It would be foolish to declare, I didn't have any great-great-grandparents. That'd be foolish. We know every person had great great grandparents. You may have never seen them. You have no evidence for such, perhaps. But you accept it. I think we also receive by faith what what our doctors tell us normally. Okay? We might, uh, you know, our doctors, they, they describe medicine for us and we take it on the basis of faith. Trust in them. We might do a little research on the credentials of our doctors. The nature of our disease, the nature of the drugs that we're taking. Some of us probably need to stay off of that, like, uh, uh, you know, self-diagnosis sort of stuff. We can spiral down on it. We can do some sort of testing, but ultimately, we believe that this doctor has read the test properly and has diagnosed the situation properly, and so we take the medicine that he gives us on the basis of faith. So the author here of Hebrews explains that he and his original be- uh, readers believe in creation of the universe by the word of God on the basis of faith. One scholar uh, helped me here. His name is Tom Schreiner and he, he, he said it this way. He says, creation out of nothing cannot be demonstrated empirically. Okay, meaning through observation or experience. You can't demonstrate it. But later Schreiner rightfully points out, neither can the contrary. His point there is you cannot disprove creation by empirical evidence, by observation or experience either. I would add to that that other concepts of the origins of the universe are all based upon, they're not based upon empirical evidence, they're all based on faith. Faith in something, okay? There's no observation or experience of a big bang. No one has that. There's no Observation or experience of evolution. No one has that either. People, uh, they, they come to their views about the origins of the universe on the basis of faith in something, whether that is science or the scriptures. And I would argue that the corroborating evidence that would come along with creation is, is much stronger for creation. But even more important than that, the inspired evidence scriptures of God declare that the universe came to existence by God speaking. Okay, so what the author of Hebrews does is he's dealing with Jewish readers. The Jewish people believed that God created the world. They believed in the Torah. Genesis 1 and 2 starts there, and so he starts by establishing solidarity with them. By faith we all believe that the universe came to be in this way. The second example is found in verse 4. Let's look at it there. It says by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain uh, through or though or through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died. He still speaks. The second example if you're taking notes 4 point outline. First, we believe creation came by faith. Second is Abel. The second example comes here from Genesis 4. If the first one's Genesis 1 and 2, this is Genesis 4. And as the author is introducing us to these examples, he might not choose the ones that we would. Okay. There's not much about Abel in the Old Testament scripture, just uh, a part of one chapter of the Old Testament Scripture, Genesis 4. Uh, But this is the person that the author chooses to exalt as an example of faith. Of course, many of you know the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam, first born into this world. Abel did not live a long life. It was tragically cut short. He was murdered. Yet the brevity of his life does not correspond to its impact upon This world. I've heard the uh, analogy before that the brightest stars are the ones that burn up the quickest. The same is often true of human beings who have short existence. Abel's short life leaves a lasting legacy. And one of the reasons it's lasting is because God accepted his gift and he rejected Cain. And he had the authors of scripture record this for us as a lasting testimony to the nature of Abel's faith. Now, if you're thinking of the Old Testament story, of course, one of the questions I think we would have here is uh, why? Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's wasn't? Now, if you're like me, you probably have an answer in your mind that is based upon like Sunday school, lessons that you took way back when. You would probably be surprised to hear then that the scriptures aren't really clear about it. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's wasn't? Although scriptures don't tell us, that doesn't stop the speculation. In fact, it probably increases it. There's some scholars who say, well, it's because of the way that Abel sacrificed. Perhaps the nature of the ritual that he followed was better than his brothers and so God accepted his rejected Cain other people say no it's the actual quality of the sacrifice Cain's was not doesn't say it was the first fruits of the cross but it does say this about Abel it came uh, he gave the firstborn of his flock okay so maybe it's the quality of the sacrifices still others say no no maybe it's the material or the substance that was used and this is one I heard growing up a lot that Abel's was a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and Cain's was of the produce of the land. So maybe it's that distinction that would make it different. Uh, Still others say, no, the real difference is the heart attitude or the disposition of Cain and Abel. That it's, It's evident that when Abel comes and he offers his sacrifice, he has faith in God, he trusts God, but what is also evident is that Cain doesn't, that he doesn't have faith. Well, scriptures never really clearly tell us, by the way, it could be any combination of those two. If I were to make a case for one, or at least I would say this, the author of Hebrews does emphasize one thing about the sacrifice. What he emphasizes is the internal attitude or the disposition of Abel. When Abel came, he had faith, and he was rewarded for it. Abel's internal disposition separated his sacrifice from Cain's And that's what the author of Hebrews emphasizes here. So that Abel still speaks as though he is dead. His faith was recorded in the everlasting word of God and it bears testimony to us here in this room thousands of years after his brief existence about the nature of genuine faith. Before we move on to the next one, I just say, I think Abraham is just such an interesting example to put here at the beginning. Just think about all of the, I may have just said Abraham, I mean Abel. Uh, Just think about all of the different disadvantages Abel had. He was born after the fall. He was born after uh, humanity was driven out of the garden, expelled from the garden, He was one of the very first human beings who did not have the privilege of walking or communing with God in the garden. Abel had to base his obedience almost entirely on faith, not on sight, unlike his parents, Adam and Eve. Abel lived a very short life. As a matter of fact, his name, Abel, in Hebrew, you know what it means? It's tra- it could be translated. Often, is in scripture when it's not a name, it's translated vapor or breath. His life was but a vapor or a breath—a very short life. Abel only impacted a few people directly. In like how many people were even living during that time? Got like I can confidently say three: Adam, Eve, and Cain. He only impacted a few people directly with his life. And finally, Abel died without experiencing in this life what he had hopes for. He was disadvantaged and murdered. Yet, I think he's a good example for in Jesus' gospel, there is no promise of earthly peace, prosperity, or safety. The way I say it sometimes is the gospel's promises are backloaded. They're backloaded. Meaning, we receive most of the promises that God gives to us in the gospel in the eternal state. Most of them. The gospel's promises, though, are rich in promises of joy and peace and righteousness in the eternal abode. So, Abraham's example inspires believers who face all sorts of injustices and pains and sorrows in this world. I'm so glad the author of Hebrews takes the example of Abel and puts it here at the beginning. But that leads us to the third one. I want you to look at verses 5 and 6 and find the example of Enoch. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. This example of Enoch comes from Genesis chapter five. And if Abel's story is short, Enoch's is shorter. Okay, there are only four verses given about Enoch's life in the Old Testament account in the book of Genesis, Genesis 5. And so because of that, we don't know much about his life. Here's what we know. Okay, we won't go back there just for sake of time. This is what we know about Enoch. He was the father of a man by the name of Methuselah. You ever heard his name before? How many of you have heard Methuselah's name? Okay, Methuselah. Okay, and what do we know about Methuselah? Yeah, the person who lived the longest, the, the oldest person to ever live. Anyone know by memory how long he lived? Nine hundred and. Okay, 969 years. I heard it over here. Someone said it over here. 969 years. Enoch's life was much shorter than his son's Methuselah. Enoch only lived 365 years. Only. Right in, it was a tragedy, right in the prime of his life. Right, right in the prime of his life, he was taken away. But what's unique or special about him, we learn in Genesis, is that Enoch... Uh, Enoch didn't die. Enoch was, the text is, taken up. Some translations, he was translated to heaven. Meaning, he didn't experience death, but God took him one day. Okay, we know these things about Enoch. One day, and I just want you to imagine that. One day, Enoch is living and walking on this earth, and the next day, his friends and family look around and know Enoch. Where is he? God took him. The emphasis on the author's account here, though, in Hebrews is, uh, is on Enoch's closeness to God. He's described in this text as pleasing God. Back in the Old Testament scriptures of walking with God. He pleased God. <clears throat> now, It's interesting, uh, and again, for sake of time, we won't look at all these, but it's interesting this week. This could be a good study for you. Go through the New Testament Scriptures and try to find the, the words pleasing God. Okay, it's, it's a very valuable study. I'd encourage you with that. I won't go through all of it with you. Let me just point out a few references that you might know. Romans 8 and verse 8. There Paul the Apostle says uh, something about uh, pleasing God. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, this is like comprehensive statement about who can and can't please God. And it's contrast that text with those who are in the spirit. So it's only believers who are walking in accordance with the spirit who can possibly please God. Others can't. That's what Paul says, Romans 8, 8. We can learn in other texts that our speech can please God. Paul talked about using speech to please God in 1 Thessalonians 2. He described what doesn't please God in that same chapter, near the end of that chapter, and that was the, the violent oppression of the people of God, like Jesus and the prophets. Those who killed Jesus and the prophets, they did not please God. Later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13 and verse 16, you learn that doing good to others and sharing what you have is pleasing to God. Doing good, sharing others. Along those lines, the author of Hebrews is making a comprehensive declaration in chapter 11 here. The author, author emphasizes here with the illustration of Enoch that, only, that, that the only people who can please God are those who have faith. More specifically, they must believe that God exists, that he is. must believe in the existence of God, but also in the benevolence of God that God rewards those who diligently seek after him. Here I think Enoch emphasizes something different than Abel, and I'm glad Enoch's in the list. Abel pleased God, and what happened to him? He pleased God even though he died. Enoch pleased God and didn't die. Okay, and so I I just... Cause you to think about these two illustrations for a moment. I, I like them because they really emphasize our part and God's part in, in our lives. Our part is to have faith or confidence in God, to trust him. And our part is to ask God to help us to have faith in him. God's part is to do whatever he wants with our life. I remember talking with one of you recently who's in the room here, and you said, you said this to me. You said, the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow. And, you know, that is true whether we experience blessing and prosperity in this world, like Enoch maybe, or whether we experience injustice and death like Abel. That's what these first two examples teach us. There's one more. I've got a few minutes. I want to talk about Noah, and then I'll make some final applications. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Here, the final example of faith in the opening cha- that comes from the opening chapters of Genesis is Noah. Noah's story is recorded in, Genesis, uh, in five chapters of Genesis, Genesis 6 through 10. So these first illustrations all come from Genesis 1 through 11. As we're looking at them, verses 3-7, through 7, everything's from Genesis 1-11. through 11. Here, Noah's story is found there. And I want to just emphasize a few things from verse 7 here about Noah. First, I think Noah is mentioned because the author is showing us that faith produces obedience. Genuine faith always changes one's behavior. And Noah is a great example of that. For Noah, it meant that he would build an ark before he ever saw a flood or one drop of rain. Okay, but, but that's the nature of faith. Faith follows God's word even when its message or its fulfillment seems questionable or unlikely to us. Faith trusts God's word over what we've experienced and our present situation. What you notice as well, the middle part of verse seven, there's a bit of discussion here about this. The middle part reads this way, by this Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The question here is, what does the word this refer to? It's a bit unclear in the text. Um, And I'll just be honest with you, it could go a few different ways. I'm not gonna get into all of it. It could be by the ark, Okay, that could be the the referent here. By the ark, he condemned the world and he became an heir of righteousness. Or it could be the construction, the building of the ark. By building the ark, he did this. Um, I think it's by faith. Okay, Uh, one of the reasons I think that is there's the same exact words used in verse four, by it, and there I think it was about faith. And then that's what chapter 11 is about, like So like everything is by faith in Hebrews 11. So if that's what this means, by faith then Noah condemns the world. Think Noah's faith. So God says, I'm going to judge the world and send a flood. And Noah responds in faith. Noah's faith contrasts the faith of those who heard the same message through its preaching but rejected it. Okay? So, see how his faith, he believes it. Others, flood, ark, what are you doing, Noah? Why are you spending so much time on this thing? It's not going to happen. Their faith. So, his faith, the text says, condemns the world and is what makes him an heir of righteousness. Okay, so that's these examples us and our confidence in creation, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. I want to close with some final, I think, relevant thoughts about, again, where we find ourselves today. Noah lived in a time of unrivaled chaos, corruption, violence, and darkness. You say to me, Pastor, I, I don't know, unrivaled. Really? I mean, like that was before like guns, knives, bombs. Some of the things we experience today, and what we see, that was before like all the stuff we experience. I would say unrivaled. If you remember what Genesis says, the entire world was condemned by God. Scriptures say it this way in Genesis 6 Every inclination of the hearts of men and women were only evil all the time. You get that? Every inclination of every man and woman was only evil all the time. The whole world was spiraling toward a devastating judgment from God where he would obliterate all but eight human beings. And so, yes, I say unrivaled, chaos, corruption, violence, and darkness. And so that's the culture he lives. And I think we can learn something from Noah. Okay, It was the virtue of faith, belief, that preserved and delivered Noah and his family. Noah lived during that wicked, wicked time as if God really was that he exists and as if God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. I want to close in an unusual way. I'll I'll ask you to turn to one other scripture I ask you to turn over to the book of Jude. Book of Jude. Do you know that someone else, just before Noah's time, joined him in speaking into the violent world around him? Someone else, just before Noah's time, joined him in speaking into this violent world. You can read about this man in verse 14 of Jude. Verses 14 and 15. The man's name is Enoch. Okay, I already heard preaching on him tonight. This is the same Enoch, the man who walked with God and pleased him and was taken for his strong faith in God. What you need to know that I haven't told you so far is that Enoch was related to Noah. Of course, yeah, aren't we all, but... Enoch was the great grandfather of Noah. And Enoch lived up to 50 years before Noah's life. Remember, they're living forever and ever and ever, up to 50 years before his life. During Enoch's day, just before Noah, there there was all kinds of debauchery, false teaching, and wickedness. And Jude tells us about this false teaching just before this. But Jude also tells us something very interesting about Enoch that we're going to read about and that is that Enoch, Enoch was a prophet or at least that Enoch spoke a prophetic utterance to the dark chaotic world around him. Now what did he say? Look at verse 14. It was also about these, the false teachers in his day, that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied sin. Okay, so here's a prophetic utterance. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all. Their deeds of the ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. End quote. What do you think of Enoch's preaching here? (laughs) Pretty strong. Somehow, in one sentence, he says the word ungodly four times. That's pretty strong preaching to the world, the wicked world around him. But notice at the beginning of his message what he states very clearly. He states very clearly future things. At the beginning of his sermon, he says, Behold, the Lord comes! That's what he says to the dark, chaotic world around him. The Lord is coming soon to judge. Enoch's faith clearly led him to act, to tell others around him about the greatness of God and about the return of the Lord. And so men and women, I think we can learn from Noah and we can learn from Enoch, may God steady us all by sowing in our soul a deep, living faith that looks to Jesus, that trusts in Jesus, and that speaks to others about Jesus. One day soon, Jesus will come, and he will make everything right. Yet I remind you what the Bible says about the return of the Lord. When he comes, he will judge those who resist him and refuse to submit to him and his word. And he will deliver those who eagerly wait for him. There are all kinds of ways that God might lead you to respond to the chaotic world around you. But one that I'm praying for is that he would give you deeper, stronger faith to believe that these things about Jesus are true. No matter what actions you do to try to help someone that you feel is being victimized or whatever, no matter what you do, that you will always go saying, Jesus, Jesus is the solution that you need. Jesus loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus is coming soon. You need to repent, and you need to turn to him. My heart was encouraged by some believers at the church, uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Many of you know I spent Years, some years there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so I was watching a video from one of my friends, a pastor of the South Campus of Believers at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and they spent all day today in the heart of Minneapolis giving water and food and cleaning the city, but also speaking about Jesus to others around them. They were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I was watching this video of my friend. It ended with them singing right down in the heart of Minneapolis, Amazing Grace. A whole group singing this together. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Whoever God leads you during these difficult days, may you speak often about Jesus. He is the reigning king. He's coming soon to judge sinners. They need to turn to him. They need to hear his gospel. Let's speak about Jesus and have that sort of faith. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the example of Enoch who warned his generation of the Lord coming with 10,000s of holy ones to execute judgment. I thank you for the faithful testimony of Noah, who lived in an unrivaled time of chaos, destruction, yet he preached righteousness. Lord, enable us as we serve others around us, as we talk with our neighbors, as we talk with our co-workers, may we speak often of Jesus. May we look to Him, trust in Him, and speak to others about Him during this time. And Lord, we pray that You indeed would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.